So I underestimated the risk of all of this, bringing family in, even though it sounded like a beautifully euphoric idea that say it either really, really works well, or it can be a complete disaster. So in our case, I think we're in the disaster category. So really evaluate and really probe the idea of bringing family in and make sure that the right people are doing the right jobs. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, David Wolf. David, are you ready to rock? I am so ready to rock, Andrew. Let me tell the audience a little bit about you. For more than 32 years, David Wolf has been the creative director, music composer, and or producer of content for radio, TV, film, podcasts, audiobooks, and multimedia. He's been hosting the Small Biz America podcast since 2005. <laughs> My gosh. Now that show is syndicated coast to coast on Biz Talk Radio Network and on Small Biz America Radio. Today, David applies his experience along with the skills of his virtual creative team to help companies, organizations, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders grow their brands and businesses through podcasting, audiobook production, and internet radio. And ladies and gentlemen, he's already given me some insights on podcasting when we were talking before the show. So, David, Take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Andrew, thank you so much. So is this the time I would step in with the story or are we not well, quite ready tell, for that? Tell, tell us about where you're at. Where are you? Yeah. Well, I'm in a really, really good zone. Over the last two years, uh, this is sort of the end of the long story, right, Andrew? Yeah. So, so I, uh, over, the, over the last two years, I've managed to build a little company out of my house after years of doing many things, which you'll hear some about for better and worse. And... Um, we're on track to do close to a quarter of a million top line revenue this year, uh, producing audiobooks, which is a huge, huge market and growing. It's a $2.5 billion market. 80,000 audiobooks are produced every year. And then we also have another side of our business where we do this podcast production stuff. So, so I help uh, folks like you and startup podcasts and some more seasoned uh, produce. We do the editing, we do the audio post-production, and then we get them out to the world through a variety of uh, channels on both sides of the business. Mm, fantastic. And so, so listeners there, you have a resource right there. And before we even get into the show, I've got a question for you. Hey, I got a, I got a book on Amazon. Yeah. Should I do it as an audio book also? What's sure, the... Not, well, you know, this is my Kool-Aid, Andrew, but yeah. Uh, look, uh, I'm ready to drink it. Here, here's the thing about audiobooks that I've discovered as I, you know, I've been doing them for a long, long time, but about two years ago, I got much more intentional about growing this part of my business. Authors have an opportunity to reach this whole audience that's in many cases untapped because there's a perception out there with book consumers that they don't have time to sit and read. So what audiobooks do is they open up this market of people that are walking, jogging, exercising, doing errands, schmying around the house, whatever they're doing to listen to your content. So it's a way to get, it's a new set of channels to get your content, the book you wrote out to an audience that may otherwise have completely missed it. Fantastic. So listeners, there you got 
some good advice. And I think we're going to have to talk more about that after the show, David. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, we love it. I, I love that part of my business. I work with authors, having authors read their own or we hire professionals. So we'll talk. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. This is awesome. So the moment looks like this. Uh, my wife and I are living in Dallas. We've got two children that are roughly, I think, uh, eight and 10 years old, if I've got it right, two boys. And we're in Dallas. We, have, we had lived there before and built successfully and together a really, really successful music production company, producing music for a lot of big name brands like you've heard, names like McDonald's, Southwest Airlines, Chuck E. Cheese Restaurants, ExxonMobil, just big brand stuff working for ad agencies or advertising agencies were our primary client, although we did a lot of work in uh, children's programming. You may have heard of Barney the Dinosaur. We're still getting royalty checks on the work we did during this period. So we had a hugely successful period. I started the company out of Chicago. We moved to Dallas, Texas from Chicago in 85, 1985, after we were married. So this is some years ago. And as a young 25-year-old guy, I was just as hungry as can be and grew this music business. Uh, 85% was driving sales and meeting new people and getting them my music reel. And then the rest was actually it spent in the studio. And eventually Phyllis, my wife, joined me and we had a virtual team and hired a lot of great players and musicians and singers located in Dallas. So the business did at peak about $650,000 a year. Top line it was just Phyllis and I were the only uh, employees. We had a C Corp, which by the way, was a, was a mistake and a problem, but that's a sort of another subject. Right around the time I turned... 37 or 36, we decided to move to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And so one of the things that happened for us is we, we extracted ourselves physically from the market that was feeding us and uh, didn't understand, and this is, speaks lar largely to the emotional content that we were talking about before we started rolling. We didn't know what, what we had. We, we didn't fully understand and appreciate the amount of cash we were generating through my creative work and, and didn't think in terms of preservation, capital preservation, which I know for financial advisors and for people like you, Andrew, who are in finance, this is like, you know, at that age, we just were, we were very risk tolerant and to a fault. And I think that theme follows Phyllis and I for a number of years. And we're still trying to make sense out of it all now that we're in our, I'm about 60 and she's in her mid sixties. You didn't hear that here by the way. So we moved to Santa Fe. We rode the wave of the success of the music business, but eventually it started to settle down because we were physically removed from the market. We then decided to move back to Dallas to try to regenerate what we had started years earlier. Because you had recognized that moving out of the market. Okay, just to make sure. Yes, we had a realization at some level and perhaps some a streak of desperation that we really did need to go back and, and, and this was a bad idea to just like, well, let's just go to Santa Fe. Let's move our kids. We had family there. My, my sister-in-law was there with her husband and the girls and there were reasons at the time, I was flying my own private airplane, which might qualify as one of the, it's funny about worst investments, you know, that, that experience was just priceless. But should I have been investing in uh, income property? Maybe. Okay. So I had an airplane and I was flying it between Santa Fe and, and Dallas. So it was a really wonderful, sexy period for us. But we went back to Dallas and we couldn't generate 
what we'd had before. There was new competition in the market, nearly 40, which in that business is a little bit old because the folks in ad agencies making creative decisions are usually in their 20s or maybe 30 something, early 30s. So it didn't really work. So we found ourselves walking around, we now call it pondering. There was a pond near our neighborhood in the suburb of Dallas that we would walk around and like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? You know, we've got this business where, you know, well, she was doing some life coaching and that was kind of going on, but wasn't really paying all the bills and what well, we could size down and stay in Dallas. I mean, what are we going to do? All right. So the phone rings and it's my brother, Bob, who lived in Albuquerque and had worked for a cousin of mine that had started a tremendously popular brand, uh, a namesake brand called Wolf's Bagels, uh, a bagel bakery company in the Albuquerque and Santa Fe market, driven by retail, but with some wholesale, and it had gone bankrupt. Uh, the cousin and his wife had created a situation that uh, was untenable. Uh, there were problems with people. They grew too fast. They were misappropriating money, I would say. And so there was this story and my brother was there and saw the opportunity. He understood the bakery and physical side of the business. I knew nothing about it, but I did know how to market. And I had, I was intrigued and interested in the idea of making edible widgets. So I looked at Phyllis and she looked at me and I think I said, look, I think this is maybe our ticket out of this, this uh, dilemma. We just didn't, we couldn't redevelop the creative business and we needed edible widgets. Sounded like a great idea. So we moved back to New Mexico with the young kids and uh, we negotiated. I had, you know, we had a considerable amount of savings. So to buy the assets of out of bankruptcy uh, for, you know, less than a hundred thousand, I think it was less than 75,000 all in to get into this business that was generating about 3.2 million at peak. It felt like a good idea. It sounded like a good idea, but um, this, all of this, this is a very complex business. It required, knowing so much more than we knew and understood about the risk that we were taking, just the, the inherent complexities of the business, 30 employees, understanding wholesale, purchasing, retail, com much more complex accounting than getting a creative fee, paying your musicians and moving on. I mean, this was, I had to really learn how to read financial statements. And all of these things, Andrew, I was excited about. I mean, I was, was authentically and honestly excited about the idea of learning something completely new that I had no history of credibility in, but doing it. We splash into uh, Albuquerque, New Mexico, and the news media picks it up. Hey, they're going to restart this. It was a very popular brand. He, was, uh, he had seven retail stores. They were selling to Cisco, uh, Shamrock, uh, Whole Foods. Wild Oats was still around then, and they weren't merged. So there was a Wild Oats and a Whole Foods. Many of the, the, the more independent types of uh, northern New Mexico chains like uh, the La Montanita Co-ops. And you know, there's a whole list of clients that we were delivering. So that he was delivering to that suddenly were left without product. And so there's this pent-up demand while they had gone into bankruptcy and were unable to organize and restart re the business. And, and by the way, the cousin and the wife, who has been estranged from at least our part of the family, left one night. No one ever heard from them again. So I walked into a, uh, an infrastructure that was set up to make the product really, really kind of blind to, again, the complexity and the risk that I was undertaking, even though the initial cash coming in was not a lot of money, arguably, you know, 50, 60, 
or so thousand to buy a business that was doing 3.2 million. One of the things too, that uh, the topic of complexity, and that's something I'm going to mention when I get into my summary of it, but continue yeah. on. And we're, we're interested to hear how okay. this goes. Okay. So one of the things that was fascinating about the business complexion of this business that I, you know, was coming into was the recipe was phenomenal. And this is sort of a, an ethnic story here, but the bagels in New Mexico, there weren't many of them. And my cousin's company had more or less created a product that was really badly needed by not only a Jewish population that likes bagels, but, you know, bagels have become kind of ubiquitous. If you live in New York, they're absolutely ubiquitous. Thailand, I don't know. But, you know, anyway. So, you know, and, and this was, he created the company during a period where it didn't matter that there was gluten in them. You know, it was regarded as a healthy breakfast, even though they're loaded with sugar and gluten and yeast and you know, all that stuff, flour. So, but what had happened during the period where he was struggling with it, aside from the mistakes he and his wife may or may not have made that caused the problems was Einstein had come in and knocked on his door and said, look, you have seven retail locations and we are coming into this market. It's on our radar. We'd like to negotiate a purchase of your locations and take them over. As Einstein. Einstein is another brand, another very large. You've been in Thailand a long time. Yeah. Einstein's bagels is a very well-known brand in the States. So right, right. For our international listeners that may not know that there are very, very well, there's a publicly traded company and uh, they're owned by a larger conglomerate, uh, but it's, it's heavy retail. So what happened even before I was considering this purchase was Einstein's came into the market and began to do it better than uh, the cousins company could do for a variety of reasons. I think the management infrastructure and the, the, the company's Bible wasn't as well developed. You know, this was a corporate company coming in that knows how to run a chain. Whereas, you know, this was, the cousin was a small business owner that was doing the best he could. And they got really lucky because of the time they did it. And the recipe was really, really good. And it really propelled them to this 3.2 annualized top line revenue number. So I came in and I wrote up, uh, well, first of all, we got into bankruptcy court, a fabulous education, and we bought the assets. And we found ourselves in a building that was built. It was a 12,500 square foot warehouse way overbuilt, bigger than his company would ever have needed, and certainly bigger than the now smaller version of what he had, because we really didn't focus on retail right away. We focused on the wholesale part, because we felt since Einstein's was now here, that was the opportunity. So we would resurrect Cisco Food Service, U.S. Food Service, Shamrock. Uh, eventually, we got into Costco. That was an That's an interesting sort of side story here, doing business with the big boxes. I'm sure you've heard this before you know, really just trying to negotiate how to do wholesale only in a, biz in a building that's overbuilt and too big with too high of, uh, of an infrastructure fixed expense base. So it was enormously challenging. And as my then CPA looked at me and said, you have a very, very steep learning curve here. Now, I, I did raise probably an aggregate over the eight or nine years I ran this thing until we just gave up. That's the end of the story. So I sort of gave away the, the end. But we, I probably raised about a million, you know, between a couple of different SBA loans. I brought in an equity investor who really loved the brand and wanted to help and, uh, you know, high net worth guy. That was tremendous in terms of my business education. 
all of which I now apply to my production company, right? On some level, I've absorbed this knowledge and I'm a, I'm a much better business person now because of the worst investment I made. But we so underestimated so many things about what it would take to do this right now. There's a whole piece to this that I didn't mention. Well, I mentioned that it was my brother and his wife and myself and my wife together to form basically the top management team. So it was a flawed model for many reasons. Some of it was personal chemistry. And you know with family businesses, Andrew, that in many cases you've got people not appropriately, they're not doing jobs that are appropriate to their skill set simply because they're a family member, they're in that role. I mean, this is going to happen. I was technically the CEO. And I was strong in the marketing side and the communication side. And I learned the financial stuff because I've got a mind for that. And to some extent anyway, and uh, you know, I raised money and I did the banking stuff. So I had a piece of it. My brother and his wife were more bakery people. You know, they were more sort of the worker bees in the, in the bakery. And one of the things that was fascinating was they wanted to be equity partners, but they had no capital to contribute. So as a professional, a financial professional, you can probably imagine the problems this may have created because we had to literally reverse engineer formulas so that they could begin to earn out uh, an equity position. But it was a flawed idea and really, really uh, created a lot of problems for us because they were sort of employees and they were owners at the same time. And it was just, it was just a mess. I'm very transparent about all of this. We ran, I ran this company with my brother and his wife, and eventually my wife took a job because while this was going on, again, back to the emotional investment we make in the wrong investment, the worst investment, I was feeding what became losses because of this large infrastructure and just not managing well. I was feeding the losses with my retirement. All this money I had amassed from the music business, doing what I love to do, hundreds of thousands of dollars, just living off of that personally with my kids and my family and also feeding the business when it needed money. And I just fed it and fed it and fed it and uh, believed that I would save it and uh, that I would save my brother as well, which was a part of kind of what was baked into the story. And uh, it became... Um, you know, kind of a painful ending. Uh, ultimately, he left because he wanted to be an, a, a quote owner and went up to Denver and started a sort of a quasi competitive bagel bakery. And he ultimately crashed and burned that completely crashed and burned it. I, at a certain point, lost one or two of our huge wholesale customers and just decided somewhere around when the crash was happening, 2007, 2008, that I was done. I was depleted. I was exhausted. I filed for bankruptcy, personal bankruptcy, a seven, and we did a refresh and a restart, reboot. I probably should have done it a lot sooner, but as you know from hearing these stories, we emotionally get connected to the idea that we can save the idea we thought was the right one. Well, first of all, thanks for sharing that. That's a great story. And now let's go into the lessons that you've learned from this experience. And I want you to really direct those lessons towards people out there that are, are considering starting a business, taking over a business. They're considering working with family on a business. I mean, there's a lot of different angles yeah. that you got there. So right. just try to go to your, what you learned from this experience. All right. Well, yeah, there's a lot there and you're right. And we may not get it all in, in, in this podcast, Andrew. And, and thank you for indulging me. It's a, it's a crazy story to tell. So, so the first and foremost lesson, now looking back, this is 20 years ago I did this project. 
I was really, really successful as a music composer and a creative professional. I'm still not entirely sure why I veered away, why I chose to basically walk away from what I was known for and what I was good at and what I'm wired for. And, and that is production, the audio production, music production, more narrowly speaking. But today I have a, you know, a production company that does podcasts and audiobooks, which is, you know, a, a close cousin to what I was doing during my twenties and thirties. So the question, why did I walk away and why did I not understand the destructive nature of walking away from what I already had experience and success in. So that's one lesson. Really ask that question. Do I know enough about this other thing? Why would I walk 180 degrees and abandon this career? I, I might have an answer. And one answer could be I was 40 and burnout and I was tired of creative on demand and it was just enough and I needed to try something new. And, and I think actually, Part of the answer is, is that I really learned a lot in this next very painful 10-year period about business. But I didn't ask that question in a deep way. And I think that's one of the lessons I learned is that, is that you should stay with what you know and don't chase the money, don't chase the deal. Really be sure that you're, you're rooted in something that you're, you just can breathe, uh, live and breathe in a very full way. On the family subject uh, that you sort of teased at. You know, I had a mixed agenda there. I, I wanted an opportunity that would save me from the problem I thought I had, which was my music business was dying and I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to save it. And I chased this business that made edible widgets, which sounded in theory great. But I also, the other part of my agenda was my brother had had very little success in his life at that point. He's a couple of years younger than me. I'm 59 this year. So and I wanted to try to help him. I think that agenda, these, these agendas were mixed and they didn't produce really good results because I wasn't critically thinking about whether he was an appropriate partner for me. I was chasing and or call it swatting at the fly that sounded like a really good fly to swat at, chasing the deal and excited about the idea of helping him doing something new in a business I knew nothing about. So there was something about the newness of it and the foreign nature of it in terms of what I had accomplished in my life. So I underestimated the risk of all of this. Bringing family in, even though it sounded like a beautifully euphoric idea, and in some cases it can really be good. I've been myself on my own podcast over the years interviewed experts in family business dynamics that say it either really, really works well or it can be a complete disaster. So in our case, I... I think we're in the disaster category. So really evaluate and really probe the idea of bringing family in and make sure that the right people are doing the right jobs. We talked about complexity and this, this probably speaks to this sub theme about the fact that I really, I mean, I threw myself into a business I knew very little about, although I, I relied on my brother who knew a lot about the physical business. We deliver every morning. We have to make the dough. We bake. I mean, he knew a lot about the bakery operation. So you could argue that I didn't need to know that stuff. And maybe I didn't, but I grossly underestimated uh, the complexity of the business. And maybe more to the point, Andrew, and I mentioned this earlier, we had a chance to relocate the operation, which was, you know, ovens and mixers and walk-in freezers, hugely expensive to relocate. But it would have been less expensive to relocate that, that infrastructure into a smaller, a smaller building with a smaller fixed expense on electric, all the utilities, everything, rent. I mean, that was draining a lot of cash out of the business really early when we still really had no clue. So I underestimated the fixed expense base 
and was foolishly optimistic that we would grow into it. Got it. Those are some of the main themes. Yeah. I, I don't know. There may be some yeah. more you could teach out of me. But. Yeah, well, I'm going to summarize what I took away, and then we're going to move on to the, the one actionable piece of advice. But uh, All right. there's a lot to your story. The first thing that I uh, thought about is that uh, if you can just see me on the camera, I'm cradling, yeah. I'm cuddling my cash flow. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, when you create cash flow, it's hard to create that. When you've got it, cradle it, cuddle it, and keep building and, and making sure and protect it. And don't walk away from it for any reason, unless, you know, in, you know, unless emotionally it's just the wrong thing for you or whatever. But so really respect the cash flow that you do create. Um, that's the first thing that I take away. The second thing is um, that complexity is risk. And, and I think um, in my coffee business, um, my business partner and I are always discussing about how do we reduce complexity. And I can see risk building up in areas of our business at times when complexity is growing. Mm. Um, the, the third thing that I take away is when, when you have a feeling that costs are too high in a business, immediately start cutting and cut massively. And I learned this from a book from, um, I forgot the guy's name and I'll put it in the show notes, but um, it was about takeover. He was a takeover guy, a, a turnaround yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. his last name was Sutton, but uh, Gary Sutton. But he said, his front, front page of the, of the book said, hi, I am the turnaround guy and you're the CEO. When I arrive, you leave because I can do what you can't do because of all of your baggage and whatever else. <laughs> and yep. uh, I love yep. this book. And I literally, when we were at our darkest hour, I pulled that book out and just rip, ripped it apart and all that. And that, that helped us a lot. Um, the other thing I would say, and this is really critical for family, but just business in general, you have to focus on right man, right job. It just, it, you just have to constantly be thinking, and, and of course, many times, it's right woman, right job. But sure. the point is, the right person on the right job is what matters most. And always think, hey, if somebody bought out our business and they were going to run it, would they put us in the charge? Would they put you in charge of that and that? Or would they go out and put a different person? So um, yeah. I, think, I think I'm going to, I got other notes, but I think those are kind of my, my most important items. Is there anything that you'd add to that? Well, this idea about making decisive sweeping moves right away, it's something that echoes the, the equity partner I mentioned who is running a $30 billion mortgage company doing jumbos, almost entirely jumbo loans uh, located here in Santa Fe. Um, he said to me something very similar to that. At some point in our journey, he said, you've got to make a sweeping move. Uh, I think there was a situation where we just needed to take out a line of credit or a debt facility. And he said, look, I'm just going to throw a bunch of money. We need to take this down. And it was this idea of decisive and sweeping. So yep. Yep. I would echo that. All right. Yep. So based on what you learn from this story and what you continue to learn in your life, what mm -hmm. one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering this same fate? Well, I think it's about... Mm -hmm. You know, and this is easier said than done, but you've got to peel back the layers of your emotional onion 
and really understand why you're going to make the decision you're going to make, whether it's about buying a business, turning a business around, starting a new business, getting into a franchise, taking a hobby and developing a business model from it. Just really understand the why you're doing it. And we hear a lot about, you know, know your why, but you really, if you're not emotionally connected to the purpose of the business, it could really hurt you down the road. The other is the idea, and you've talked, you're all over this all the time, Andrew, and that is the idea of risk. Understand and do not underestimate the power of complexity, the power of risk. I love that risk. Uh, complexity equals risk. Risk shows up in a lot of insidious ways, and just try to determine what you don't know, you don't know, you don't know. Okay. And uh, last question, what's your number one goal for the next 12 months? So we are building a... Uh, I say we, me, and a virtual team are building a uh, business. I'd love to see it hit uh, the two, the quarter of a million dollar top line mark. Uh, the gross margins are looking really, really good. I've got pricing that's working on both sides. I would say maybe favoring the audiobook side. And uh, so my, you know, it's interesting. Somebody asked me the other day, what are my, what's my goal in terms of like quantifying it? And I haven't done that yet. And maybe I need to do that. You're nodding. Yes. I'm sort of rolling with it. And it's like more is more is more is more. So I think what I, one of the goals may be to quantify my objective. So it's sort of a question embedded in a question. Great. Yes. And I highly recommend for yourself as well as listeners. And I try to keep myself to this, but I don't always do it. Number one, write down your number one goal. Number two, identify your top three obstacles to achieving that goal. And number three, write down the next few steps that you need to take to get to that goal. And I think mm. in your case, uh, you listening to your story and thinking about the whole podcast is that write down the risks. <laughs> so and don't minimize yeah. them don't rationalize yeah. them away right yeah we always we look for the uh i mean i think that the point is is that writing writing things down has a lot more power than what you realize so definitely yeah. do that and i think we'll have a follow-up discussion about that david <laughs> thank you yeah well, off, off air maybe right but yeah. uh no this yeah. is great yeah. well all right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. And as we wrap up, David, thank you again for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I'm grateful for uh, the opportunity to tell the story because it uh, helps me uh, really internalize it and, uh, again, point to the future, as you've suggested. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, that kind of tips into what we talked about before we went on and that is about awareness. And ladies and gentlemen, it's important to build awareness of our risks, of our feelings, of what's going on around us. The more awareness that we have, the more ability we can handle each day and the struggles that come. So that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. I'll see you on the upside.